0: So we're in the part of 2 Samuel where David and his reign is beginning to unravel as a result of the sin that he committed with Bathsheba back in chapter 11 and 12. The prophet Nathan came to him and told him that there were going to be consequences as a result of his sin, that it would essentially divide the kingdom, and we're seeing this begin to play out in these chapters together. Last Sunday, we considered the immediate fallout of his sin, which was sort of this kind of widespread and ongoing issue where his children were becoming more and more like Saul and actually patterning themselves after David in many, many ways. And now we see a full-blown Saul in the camp, in the family of David, namely his own son Absalom, who is seeking the throne to take it from his father just like Saul had done in 1 Samuel. It's a sad couple of chapters, but there's hope that runs throughout it because God promised in the words that Nathan gave David that his steadfast love would not depart from David and that he would continue to build his kingdom through David. And that's what we're going to see this morning. I got four points to my sermon. We're going to look at Absalom's rebellion initiated, how he starts this rebellion, this coup against his father. And then we're going to see David's exile initiated where he again has to flee for his life under Absalom's uh, efforts to take the throne. Then we're going to see Absalom's rebellion fulfilled and then David's exile fulfilled. So we're going to see the initiation of both Absalom's rebellion and David's exile and then the fulfillment of Absalom's rebellion and David's exile. Let's first of all consider what Absalom is up to here in these opening chapters, or opening verses of chapter 15. These chapters in 2 Samuel covered a period of about four years where David is systematically um, undermined in his rule by his son Absalom, who's trying to overthrow his father's throne. And after manipulating Joab, who was David's kind of right-hand man and chief military officer, into letting him into Jerusalem, Absalom manipulates the people of Israel to shift their loyalty from David to him. And the text tells us that Absalom was particularly politically shrewd. By pomp and show, he creates a very public persona. Absalom would stand outside of his father's palace, and whenever people would bring their cases to the king, he'd go up to them and put his arm around him and say, Wow, man, you got a real issue there. Fortunately, dad's a little busy right now. He can't give you justice. I can. If I were to judge Israel though, I'd make sure you got a hearing and I'd make sure you got justice. So what happened as a result of Absalom doing this time after time? Well, he begins to steal the hearts of the people of Israel by claiming that he will be a more just and attentive leader than his father by flattering his future subjects. Proverbs warns us about this kind of behavior. Proverbs 29.5, a man who flatters his neighbor, spreads a net for his feet. But when the time was right, Absalom stages a coup. Look at verse 7, of chapter 15. And at the end of the four years, Absalom said to the king, please let me go now and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived to Gesher and Aram, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring you back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Remember, this is kind of the headquarters of the kingdom here. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city Gila, And conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Now David allows Absalom to go to Hebron, where David began his reign, under the pretext of worship. But while there, Absalom begins sending messengers throughout the kingdom to proclaim that he is king, bringing 200 unsuspecting noblemen with him. And Absalom enlists the wisest men in Israel to be his advisor. Absalom mounts a rebellion and he drives David out of the palace. And then, as a show of power, he sets up a pavilion on the roof and sleeps with some of David's wives, which was intended to be a public humiliation of his dad and to let everyone know that he had stolen his father's kingdom. That's how chapter 15 ends. Absalom has stolen David's house, stolen his kingdom, stolen his wives. And the irony is that Absalom is doing all of this from the roof of the palace, the place where David's original sin began. The author is telling us something. This could have been avoided. This is the response. This is the consequence of what David's sin is bringing. So the sins of the father have multiplied in the son, just as we saw with Amnon last week. And chapter 15 ends with David in abject failure. We read in verse 30, So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. You know, I can't help but make a comparison between Absalom's style of leadership and the way the Bible presents true and righteous leadership. Absalom reminds me a lot of politicians of our day. He's a quintessential politician. He makes promises that he cannot keep nor never intended to do so in order to get strategic interest groups to vote for him. That's what politicians do today. And similarly, Absalom-type leaders are sometimes drawn to churches where they seek to steal the hearts of God's people by claiming that they present better leadership that the people really need. That the present leadership is failing and falling short and that they could surely do a much better job of running things if they were in charge. And while they may accurately critique the weaknesses of others, they rarely prove to be more effective as leaders, just as Absalom wasn't. On the other hand, some domineering church leaders have misused the story of Absalom as a way to accuse anyone who questions their authority of Touching the Lord's anointed and committing sinful treason against the Lord. Well, Scripture teaches a balanced and wise approach, recognizing that leaders should be given the benefit of the doubt, but at the same time held accountable for sin. So we read in 1 Thessalonians 5, 11 and 12, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Or Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. So you get these positive affirmations of leadership. Honor them, support them, submit to them, obey them in as much as they are calling you to obey the Lord. But then you get 1 Timothy 5, 21. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them. Rebuke those elders who persist in sin. In the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing with partiality. This is the way in which God's people are to be led. Without partiality, without manipulation and maneuvering. But unfortunately, it's all too common. The ways of the world creep in to the church and they begin to reflect the leadership of the world. And sadly, as even the prophets Prophesied, God's people sometimes love to have it so. So, that's Absalom's rebellion initiated. He's staged this coup. He's gathered this support. He's going to overthrow his father's throne and take the kingdom. So, what does that bring about? David's exile. So, secondly, we come to David's exile initiated. So, David has reached a new low. See what he's already been through. He, right on the heels of his forgiveness... And his rejoicing in the returning joy of his salvation as he has been recovered and, and 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 saved from his sin and forgiven by his God, his sons begin making a mess of his kingdom. And David has to run for his life in order to escape being assassinated by his own son and the multitude who have joined him in his conspiracy. And much like his time with Saul, David is headed back into exile. As David flees Jerusalem and heads back into exile, he encounters a series of people who must choose what side they will be on. Absalom or David? Are you with Absalom or are you with David? David has five encounters on his way out of Jerusalem, and that very issue gets surfaced. So let's look at each one of these encounters as David's exile gets initiated. First of all, he has an encounter with Hushai and Ittai. And they both respond similarly. But the first person David encounters is a foreigner and recent recruit of David's. In verses 18 to 23. He pledges his allegiance to David as the Lord's anointed. And even as others flee, Ittai remains faithful. This is an unlikely ally being that Ittai is a Philistine from Gath, Goliath's own town. However, like Ruth, the Moabitess before him, who was also of a contrary tribe, we might say, to Israel. He's determined to follow David even until death. You can almost hear him echoing the words of Ruth in Ruth 1. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. It's almost like Ittai took those words of Ruth on his lips. It reminds me also of what the Lord Jesus asked, this, asked His disciples while many were forsaking Him. Remember this in John 6, verses 66-68. to 68? After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. So Jesus said to the twelve, You want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Dear ones, are we the loyal friends of the Son of David? who will stand with Him and follow Him even when all seems to be against Him, when His PR, public relations rating isn't particularly high as if it ever was. Dear ones, as our culture continues to grow more and more non-Christian, unbelieving, secular, whatever you want to call it, are we going to join Jesus at the margins? Are we going to keep following Him when it gets hard? Or when the comfort goes, Will we go too? Let's take our example from Ittai here and let's, let's hold fast to our king. <laughs> no matter what's happening to him. No matter what efforts are being used to overthrow his kingdom. He's the true king. We're, we're going down with you, Jesus. <laughs> That's the way we need to respond. Because sometimes it does look like his kingdom is going down, doesn't it? But we know who the king is. And we know whom God has made him to be. And we'll join him. No matter the cost. May God give us grace to do that. So that's the first encounter. The second encounter is with two men named Zadok and Abiathar in verses 24 to 29. Let's read those together. 2 Samuel 15, beginning at verse 24. Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. I think they've learned a couple things. They're probably handling it rightly. Nobody dies. This is good. Progress. Verse 25, then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me as what seems good to him. King also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ihamaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. So here's Zadok and Abiathar, another priest, who are loyal to David. The ark of the covenant is brought out of the city to join the king, David. This is a remarkable act of faithfulness and fidelity and loyalty to David saying, look, the presence of God goes with you, David. You are God's anointed king. Therefore, we will carry the ark, the symbol of God's presence, with you wherever you go. Because wherever you go is where God is going. Because you are God's anointed king. It's a a good impulse. But David responds by saying, My future doesn't depend on furniture. Take it back. Take it back in. So he sends the men and the ark back to Jerusalem. And in doing so, David is submitting his life to the will of God. However, he also takes steps to secure his future, knowing what God has promised. He is on the move. So he instructs the two men to be the eyes and the ears of David. He sends these two priests back to Jerusalem. He says, keep your ears open. Let me know what Absalom's up to, what's going down. And so they're essentially the king's spies, sent into Jerusalem to provide vital information for the king while he is outside of the city. That's encounter number two. Encounter number three, Hushai. We catch up with him again at the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. This is not happy, is it? And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. My goodness, that had to hit David in the heart. His chief counselor is with his son who's in rebellion. Notice what David says. "O oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Please take the wisest and make him the most foolish. He prays to the Lord. He seeks the Lord. Verse 32. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, if you go on with me, you'll be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in times past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the council of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar. Behold, their two sons are with them there. So Hushai is sent back along with Zadok and Abiathar to Jerusalem to subvert the council of Ahithophel, which is the direct answer to David's prayer. And this will actually be the case as we will see when we come to chapter 17. We learn here that it's good both to pray and to take strategic action, which is in accordance with our prayers. You may pray for good things like a job, a spouse, or an opportunity for ministry or evangelism, but after praying, don't merely sit waiting for an answer to drop from the sky. Complete an application, pursue an interview. Go on a date, engage in ministry, share the gospel, take appropriate action using the godly means that might lead to the godly desired ends, which is what David does here. So his fourth encounter is with Ziba, beginning in chapter 16. We read in the opening four verses, and while these first three encounters have been largely positive, these last two are a lot less so. It's largely been good for David as he's been leaving the city. He's had one person after another come up to him and pledge their loyalty to him. And he says, look, go back to the city. The way that you can best serve me now is to go into that city and let me know what Absalom's up to. Be loyal to him. Even though I receive the ultimate loyalty that you have shown me. So now it turns ugly. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him. Remember Mephibosheth, the disabled son of Jonathan, whom David had shown great kindness to, great love to, great affection for, sitting sitting him at his own table, adopting him into his own family. Well, his servant comes out to David, and David's no doubt expecting, well, there's there's a friend. It's going to go well. No, it isn't. Ziba the servant of Mephibosheth met him with a couple of donkeys saddled bearing 200 loaves of bread. Oh, this is going to be great. Look, he's got food. A hundred bunches of raisins, a hundred of summer fruits, a skin of wine. The king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread, the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where's your master's son? Meaning Mephibosheth. Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. What? Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. So it's good, but it's not good. In that Mephibosheth is now deserted David and joined Absalom in his rebellion. So David meets Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, Saul's son, and when David asks about him, he's informed that he's chosen to remain in Jerusalem, and so David gives Ziba the land he originally gave to Mephibosheth in chapter 9. Now this will later prove to be rash and unwise on David's part, we're reminded here of the truths of Proverbs 18.13. If one gives an answer before he hears, it's his folly and shame. Ziba's not correctly representing Mephibosheth here, and we're going to see that in later chapters. But you can imagine if he heard from the servant of Mephibosheth what, he, what he's doing, he would read the worst construction into it, which is what he does. So David makes this rash thing, and he says, all right, you can have his land. Just kind of out of hurt and offense, But we're reminded again in Proverbs 18, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. David needed another perspective on Mephibosheth other than the one Ziba was giving him. But when you're under stress and under pressure as David is, not to excuse his folly, but he made some rash decisions. And then, final encounter, encounter number five, Shimei. David also encounters one of Saul's relatives, Shimei. And David's humiliation reaches its peak as Shimei rains down curses on David, claiming that David is richly deserving the evil which has come down upon him through Absalom. By the way, don't be like Shimei. We're getting ready to read Okay, the church has no place for Shimei attitudes. And it is in the church. Which is the the attitude that says, you deserve this. I know you're repentant and forgiven, but I'm going to remember it. I know where all the bodies are buried. It's an awful spirit. And it's all too present even among the people of God, unfortunately. Shimei begins to rain down curses on him, claiming from a righteous standpoint, you're getting all this because you deserve it. But he has zero mercy in his heart. Look at verse 5 of chapter 16. When David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. That doesn't mean he's throwing out bad words. This means he's pronouncing judgment on David. And he threw stones at David, and at all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out! Get out! You man of blood! You worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Now David's men want to retaliate, but David recognizes the voice of God even in the curses of Shimei. So he resists the impulses of his hot-headed but loyal soldier Abishai to kill Shimei on the spot. Look at verse 9. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog... That's what Mephibosheth described himself as in chapter 9. Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all of his servants, Notice how David's going to humble himself and hope that the Lord will reward him for his forbearance with Shimei. Look at verse 11. Behold, my son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. Now later, in chapter 19, we will see that Shimei will claim to be repentant for his actions, but years later, he will be punished by David's son Solomon for the words that he spoke here in chapter 16 against the Lord's anointed. Here's what we read in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 about Shimei. There also was with you Shimei, the son of Gera the Benjaminite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. And when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore by him, to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now therefore, do not hold him guiltless For you are a wise man, you will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Now notice what Solomon, David's son, does with Shimei in verses 36 to 46 of 1 Kings 2. Then the king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there, and do not go out from there to any place whatever. For on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron, know for certain that you shall die, your blood shall be on your own head. And Shimei said to the king, What you say is good, as my lord the king has said, so will your servant do. So Shimei lived in Jerusalem many days. But it happened at the end of three years, the two of Shimei's servants ran away to Achish, son of Macha, king of Gath. And when it was told Shimei, behold, your servants are in Gath, Shimei arose and saddled a donkey and went to Gath to Achish to seek his servants. Shimei went and brought his servants from Gath. And when Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and returned, the king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and solemnly warn you, saying, Know for certain that on the day you go out and go to any place whatever you shall die? And you said to me, What you say is good, I will obey. Why then have you not kept your oath to the Lord and the commandment with which I commanded you? The king also said to Shimei, You know in your heart all the harm that you did to David my father. So the Lord will bring back your harm on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. Then the king commanded Beniah the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down, and he died. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. This foreshadows, of course, Shimei's judgment, foreshadows all those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. That just as Shimei railed against the Lord's anointed and pronounced curses down upon him as those who spit at Christ as he was making his way to the cross and mocking him unrepentantly, are now being judged. And so it will be. God's judgment may come slow, but it comes. In Shimei's case, it took a while. So dear ones, if you're outside of Christ this morning and you have not been killed in a car accident this week, just know that that is a sign that you could be And that you need to get right with the Lord Jesus Christ before you have to meet Him. Better to meet Him as a Savior and a Father than a judge and an executioner. Make the right decision. Learn from Shimei. And learn the consequences that come to those who curse the son of David. Or David himself in this this case. So that's David's exile initiated. And these last two points will go much quicker. So we've looked at Absalom's rebellion and how that started. We looked at David's exile and the five encounters he has as he heads out of Jerusalem. Now let's look at what eventually happens in Absalom's rebellion fulfilled and David's exile fulfilled. Point number three, Absalom's rebellion fulfilled. Now David reaches the Jordan, humbled, exhausted, after a long journey of more than 20 miles. And we pick up the story at verse 15 in chapter 16. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem. And Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, Whom shall I serve? Should it be not be his son, as I have served your father, so I will serve you. So as Absalom enters Jerusalem, David's friend and spy, Hushai, greets him. And Absalom, I think rightly, questions his loyalty. Hushai's flattery succeeds with Absalom. Absalom's a pretty uh, flatterable bull guy. And Ahithophel counsels Absalom to sleep with David's wives and concubines as a public display of his kingship. This is in fulfillment of God's judgment through Nathan's prophecy in 2 Samuel 12 where we read in verses 11 and 12, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, not thinking his neighbor would be his own son. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the son. Absalom serves as a sobering reminder of what can happen when a son receives no correction Proverbs 19, 18, Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Remember, David did neither with Absalom nor Amnon. He was becoming like Eli and Samuel before him, who would not discipline his children. Parents, the sobering reality is that our sin affects and shapes our kids. They learn and they can repeat our mistakes, often to even greater degrees. Studies show, for example, that if you neglect your kids, they'll likely grow up neglecting theirs. You abuse them, they'll abuse theirs. You're a workaholic, and they'll grow up with identity issues that manifest in all kinds of toxic ways. You're unfaithful to their mother or father, they grow up with commitment issues of their own. You fail to be faithful in your giving, or you nurse a secret love of money, they'll grow up materialistic. They overhear you gossiping about or judging others in your home, then they'll grow up with a critical and complaining spirit towards the church too. Self-righteous and with problems getting along with others. Now let's be clear, am I saying that every sin we see in our kids is our fault? Of course not. Of course not. Our kids, especially as they get older, are their own people, and they make their own decisions, and thank God that sometimes those decisions end up being way better than the ones we made. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. But let's not forget the Bible teaches this kind of thing too. Finally, David's exile fulfilled. David's exile fulfilled. Even in all of this, God is at work. Take heart, dear ones. God is at work in this. 2 Samuel 7, 14 and 15. Remember what Samuel said to David? I will be father to him, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. That's what David's experiencing here. But that's not the end of the story. Verse 15. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and right before these verses is the following verses in verses 12 and 13. When your days are revealed and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. Dear ones, this just isn't talking about Solomon. This is talking about Jesus. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish a throne of his kingdom Forever. These dark chapters, verses 15 and, chapters 15 and 16 of 2 Samuel, are foreshadowing the chapters that Jesus Himself will live. I want you to see it for yourself. Jesus walked the steps that David walked. Literally. David began his journey where? The Mount of Olives from Kidron. We read in chapter 15, verse 23, And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook. Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. Well, what do we read in John 18.1? When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which He and His disciples entered. And as David flees out of Jerusalem barefoot with his head covered, a picture of abject failure, there's a little detail tucked in there that you don't want to miss in verse 30 of chapter 15. David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives the ascent of the mount of olives would later be renamed the garden of gethsemane and you see years later another son of david would walk that path weeping and sweating great drops of blood and this future son of david would also be rejected as king but unlike david it was not his own sin that drove him out of jerusalem it was ours And as he walked up that same ascent to the Mount of Olives that David walked so that he could die for our sin, make sure you see this, Jesus walked David's same path of shame so that he could redeem David and put his kingdom back together. But that's not the only detail we get. David was met on the road as he was heading out of Jerusalem by who? A Gentile who remained loyal to him, Ittai. What do we read in Matthew 27, 57? When it was evening, there was a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who was also a disciple of Jesus. A Gentile willing to stick by him and provide for him as he goes into exile, as he goes to face death. And in the midst of his exile, David received news of the betrayal of Ahithophel in verse 13 of chapter 15. Well, what do we read in Matthew 27, 47-50? While he was still speaking, Judas came one of the twelve, and with him, this is, this is Jesus own Hithophel. A great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer has given them a sign saying, The one whom I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi! And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Free Friend, do what you came to do. Then he came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And then even Mephibosheth appears to have betrayed David in the midst of all of this, right? Where we read in Matthew twenty six fifty six, But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Shimei taunted David with curses. Matthew 27, 49-53, And those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God, receiving taunts and curses. And just as David sought to protect his remaining loyal followers and restrain them from taking revenge for his sake, so Jesus did the same. Matthew twenty six fifty one to fifty four and behold one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But now then should the scriptures be how should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? What scriptures is Jesus fulfilling? Second Samuel fifteen and sixteen is what He's fulfilling. These are the scriptures he's talking about, in addition to other scriptures. But certainly these, he's reliving David's failed reign so he can establish a righteous kingdom, a truly righteous son of David. David, by his godly restraint, sets a godly example for us to do for what we should do when others slander us, right? We will likely face shimmy eyes at some point, and we can trust God to deal with them. We can also seek to learn what God may be teaching us through them. 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. A few more. Because of this, all of this treatment, we should express confidence in our God just like David did. 2 Samuel 15.25, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. 2 Samuel 16, 12. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. And boy, did God ever repay the son of David for the cursing that he received. Luke 22, 42, and 24, 26. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Dear ones, Jesus is reliving the story of David for us. Because David was a failed king. He was a sinful king. He was the king that could not bring in God's ultimate kingdom. But Jesus can. And we must follow the example of our greater David, the Lord Jesus who humbled himself and submitted himself to God's will in the midst of the suffering he was receiving. God offers us hope and grace even when the trials we experience are the stuff of our own making. David sinned. And all this came collapsing in on him. But Jesus relived this story so that all the wounds we would receive for our sin would be the wounds of grace, where Jesus could pour in his healing. So there's a major difference. David is suffering for his own sin, but Jesus was suffering for David's and ours. And the final word over our life will be the final word that the New Testament gives over the life of David. In Romans 4, 5-8, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And why was David's sin not counted against him in any ultimate or eternal sense? Because it was counted against Jesus. And so it will be with your sin. If you're trusting in him and if you're not trusting in him, all your sin is counted to you. Oh, I don't want that for you. I don't want that for anybody in this room. Count your sin to Jesus. Give your sin to him. He will give you his righteousness and you will know the blessing of David because of the greater blessing that the son of David gave us in his life, death and resurrection. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that History isn't meaningless. That the things your word records in the life of your saints, of your people, especially in the Old Testament, is always a picture. It's always a foreshadowing of Jesus' life and what is to come. It's always preparing us for the true son of David. Just as this David failed, and there were consequences and there were sin that came to him, Lord Jesus, thank you for walking our road. Thank You for living in the midst of our shame. Thank You for enduring our curse. Thank You for taking upon ourselves the judgment that our sins deserved so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be set free, and so that we can be counted righteous apart from works. It's not anything we do. It's everything Christ has done. We are justified by faith apart from works of the law. We have no works. We are just like David, drowning in our sin, running in our exile, struggling to find hope. But then the word of the gospel comes. Blessed is the man whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sin is covered. You shall not die. And Lord, that gospel hope rings in our ears. Let it ring in our ears this morning, this week, this afternoon, this month, this entire year, for the rest of our lives. Let this gospel hope ring in our souls that our greater David, our, the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, has lived in our place, died in our place, and rose again, that we would be set free. We celebrate you this morning, Jesus, for purchasing our salvation and providing it for us. Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We want to cling to you as faithfully as you would enable us. Enable us to do so tenaciously till the end of our days. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and respond in song.